Well, once again, it's uh, just a privilege to open the Bible this morning to you. I'm never uh, disappointed when I come to Scripture, and I've never been disappointed from opening the Bible here um, at this pulpit. You guys love to feed on the Bible and learn from truth, and I feed on that. Appetite is uh, part of the Christian life, and appetite is fed by um, being around people who want to feed, and it it sort of makes you want to learn, and so I learn with you as we explore Scripture together, and the Lord's brought us again back together to open the Word of God, and we're going to be in Matthew 5 this morning. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, and we're looking at the topic of retaliation, retaliation. This is uh, one of the subsets of Jesus' sermon. He's been dealing with a lot of different, very practical things. Sometimes people say, well, this is a practical sermon, or this is a relevant sermon. Well, we know the Bible's always relevant, no matter whether we say it's relevant or not. It is relevant. It is practical. It's all we need for life and godliness. All we need is found in Scripture. This is the target for the Christian to come back to truth, come back to the relevance that's here to be had. And this uh, theme of non-retaliation is so practical, just like the rest of the Scripture. Well, the standard that Jesus gives to live it is what I want to start with, and that is found in verse 48. It's the last verse, if I would direct your minds and attention to that, verse 48 It's the last verse of chapter 5. It's a high standard. It says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It's sort of a mind-blowing statement for our Lord Jesus to make, right? You got to be perfect, just like your heavenly father is perfect. So with that statement in mind, that's why I titled this sermon, Doing the Impossible. Jesus gives a bunch of things that are like an impossible mission for the Christian. One is what we're talking about today, which is when you're attacked, abused, insulted, you can't retaliate. You can't retaliate in kind. We've been talking about keeping oaths. We've been talking about the solemnity of marriage and sacredness of being pure and not given to adulterous behavior. We've been talking about your yes being yes, your no being no. We've been talking about anger and how that needs to be yielded to the Holy Spirit. Now we're talking about retaliation, non-retaliation. All these are attitudes and actions that are found in the Christian's heart where we combat sins and we do what is the impossible, at least in terms of the world's eyes. Perfection is not perfectionism. We're not trying to do ourselves holy to the point where we're acceptable for heaven. That's a heresy. Perfection here is being like the Lord Jesus because he gives us the power of the Holy Spirit to live out the truth, not perfectly, not sinlessly, I should say, but obediently, where we want to obey these things. And what we're talking about here is the obedience of what Jesus requires, which is not to retaliate to abuse. Is this reasonable? Well, I want to first say abuse is always wrong. Attacking is always wrong. Being attacked represents sin in our world. We're never supposed to 
feed on being attacked or ask for being attacked, but it happens. There, is, there are trials and there are persecutions promised to Christians who take a stand for truth, who are known to live as Christ. It's asking for attack and abuse. But I should say up front, it's never right to allow a child to be abused, right? We protect the little ones, the little ones that are the Lord's little ones. Better a millstone be tied around somebody's neck than that person and cast into the sea than that person be allowed to cause a little one to stumble. The Bible says that if you don't take care of your household, you're worse than an unbeliever. So we're supposed to protect the innocent. We're supposed to protect our families. If there's abuse between spouses, I advise, wise counsel would advise to flee that abuse. Get out from under it so that you can see it clearly and address it. So that perhaps peace could be made in that kind of household. But if it can't be made, if it, peace can't be had, then the believer who flees can at least be at peace. Not supposed to stay in abusive situations. These are non-negotiables scripturally. And at the same time, the non-negotiable that Jesus gives here in our section, verses 38 to 42 is a non-negotiable that you cannot retaliate or return evil for evil. You can't do it. If you want to stand out in the world and witness for Christ and follow the path that Jesus paved for us to follow, you can't retaliate evil for evil. You can't return fire in the way of the flesh This is talking about the believer's response to abuse where you stand distinct from everyone else. We know good and honest people, but we know good and honest people once they're sort of fleshly good and fleshly honestly um, comes to its limit. When the abuser takes advantage of someone, those who are good and honest turn on their abusers because they're in the flesh. Christians, when attacked, can exceed this capacity because the capacity is limitless with the Holy Spirit where the capacity doesn't run out and you're able to stand out and there's something more to you that people observe and see as distinct and different. Those watching will differentiate you from the world. This section, and I'm taking it actually in a two-part sermon series here to finish chapter five, is hanging together as not... Being a non-retaliator, and then secondly, to love your enemies. It breaks down into two practical units that make the believer unique. When attacked, you take abuse like no one else can. That's verses 38 to 42. If you want to summarize it, when attacked, you can take abuse in a way that no one else can. And then verses 43 through 48, when attacked, not only do you take the abuse, but you can also love the abuser. You can love the attacker. Instead of retaliating, what do you do? You love. A dramatic response that becomes a clear witness to onlookers. This is the something more in your life that's a witness. It also, guess what? Not only does it witness to the world when you return love for evil, it retrains your heart to love your enemies. Listen to how C.S. Lewis, the great literary author, wrote, of this in mere Christianity. He said, the rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. 
As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets when you're behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone or you dislike that person, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. The difference between a Christian and a worldly man is not that the worldly man has only affections or likings and the Christian has only charity. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian trying to treat everyone kindly finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not have imagined himself liking at the beginning. When I was a senior in high school, though I'd been raised a Christian, and again, my earliest thoughts were in the nursery, <laughs> or my earlier nursery appeal, right? I became a Christian, though, when I was a senior, and it was October. I just, through the month of October, somehow the Lord got a hold of my heart through lay Sunday school teachers and all the seeds that had been sown in my heart from my parents and brother and others came alive. And I realized I was different. And I realized I had a new capacity to do things that I couldn't otherwise do before. I was a pretty, I was a hardened, you know, heart, um, like a spiritually hardened criminal in my own heart against the Lord and was pretty bitter and hypocritical. And, uh, but I became a Christian and I, I enjoyed um, weightlifting at the time. I know you can tell right now, but back then. But me and my friend, uh, we went to the gym and, and we worked out and it was at the local recreation center and in Virginia Beach, Virginia, we went in there and when we came out, this gang um, that was sitting in the lobby targeted us and, and stood up and followed us out in the parking lot and separated us and, and he punched uh, my friend who was no small guy and he, uh, he left the scene and the group came and swarmed around me around my car and I was trying to get in. And as I tried to get in to get away from the group, uh, you know, there were different weapons and uh, the guy had something in his hand or a ring or something. He punched me as I was getting in the car and split, split my eye or right under my eye, the skin. And I just remember getting in the car and locking the doors and trying to get away and looking up in the rearview mirror and seeing blood come down my face and had this thought. And it was just fresh in my mind. It was the very first thought I had as a new believer. I said, I need to forgive this person for what he just did. I absolutely know that. But because I was a new believer, it wasn't long after that moment that, you know, anger gave way and all kinds of like turmoil in my own heart in terms of what I should do and how I should respond and go back and what I should do. And uh, I worked through that for about a month or so. My parents were trying to keep me away from the rec center, but obviously teenage young man, I, I went back and uh, had my eye patched up and, um, or butterflied. And I brought a couple of friends with me and actually found the guy. He just circumstantially, he was in the parking lot without his gang, without his friends. And so me and rather two large friends, <laughs> bigger than me friends, um, stood there and uh, we were addressing this guy for what he did. And I, uh, I, I saw this guy had something in his hand again, some kind of object my friend just reached over and took it out of his hand. So he was disarmed, and there we are. And at that point, he begins to really search his soul and say, you know, I, I did do that, and he owned what he had done. And my heart sort of changed towards his and towards him, and I just said, I just want you to know I forgive you for what you did. What was interesting to me is in that moment, he was kind of lost and didn't know what to do with himself and wouldn't look me in the eye and, you know, was kind of 
spouting out into the air and said, oh, you're one of those people. You're one of those Christian folks. I know people like you. What is going on here? And he was just having a little panic attack over to the side. And I realized in that moment that this exchange I was having with him was less to do about what we were talking about and more to do about with, with what my friends were observing. They were seeing me forgive someone. And that's the Christian's witness. It was a couple weeks later, I was in high school and somebody told me about this same guy who was in another school who was known for fighting and known for being a brawler and he had fought, was fighting again in the lunchroom and somebody slammed him through the lunch table, which I don't wish that on anyone, but that is what happens when you sow and reap in that way. But he needed the grace of Christ just like I had been given. God had changed my heart and that's How we witness in the Christian life is through living out this path. This path in front of us is being like Jesus Christ. The Sermon on the Mount is how to be like Jesus. How do you, as a sinful Christian, live like Christ in the world? How do you do it? Well, we live the impossible. We do impossible things that are made possible by the Spirit of God. And people observe us trying to live out the impossible by the Spirit of God. And they go, Jesus must be real. That's how it all ties together. That's what this is talking about. If you're taking notes, it's two impossibilities made possible by God's intervening grace, which caused Christians to stand out in a lost world. Two impossibilities made possible. And here's the first impossibility. Point one, God gives his children grace to absorb abuse and not retaliate in kind. It's verses 38 to 42. Non-retaliation. Listen as I read verse 38. You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Let's stop there. This is another corrective on a misconstrual of the law. This is another corrective that Jesus gives to false teaching done by the rabbis of old. You've heard that it was said. You've heard that it was said. And you can just see Jesus in your mind's eye sighing and going, they said this, but I say to you, correcting again, the wrong use of the law. People will always try to twist and contort scripture to um, their own ends, their own means. They'll twist the law to accommodate sin. What are they doing here? Well, this is the great text of the Lex Talionis. Lex Talionis is a Latin phrase for um, law and retaliation. This is one of the oldest laws Known to humanity, this law that was given an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was on the Code of Hammurabi, uh, which is an ancient tablet, which was the first, um, first of a few that was ever deciphered as writing in the world. It's dated back to millennia BC, earlier in the time than Moses, dating back to the times of Abraham. This is when this Code of Hammurabi was written. And so Moses, when he wrote the law in the Old Testament, actually used this lex talionis, this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, to explain how law can be lived out, not in a caustic way, not in a 
zero tolerance way, as many will read this, but in a way that is fair, in a way that actually slows down zero tolerance slows down the harshness of the law. This is not law that is some Middle Eastern type law where if you steal something, your hands are amputated or your fingers are chopped off. This is talking about law that actually comes to bring grace. There's so much talk or there was going into the political um, time for our country um, in regards to the law and the need for law. And there is a great need for law. Law, according to John Calvin, is what is used to restrain evil in our world. That was the intent of this law. This isn't some zero tolerance law. Exodus 21, 24, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Leviticus 24, 20, fracture for fracture, eye for eye. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Deuteronomy 19, 21, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. But what is it? What do I mean that there's grace found in this law? Well, look with me back just to get a, a context for what Moses was writing here for the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 19. I'm sorry, Exodus 21. But look back at verse 18, Exodus 21, 18. It says, when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if a man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. So there's fairness here. There's compensation being talked about, reparations being talked about, restorations being made. It's all kinds of um, civil dynamics with the law here. Verse 20, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who, that's premature labor, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judge judges determine. But if there is harm, then he shall pay life for life. So there's some sowing and reaping there if, if a child is murdered in the womb, interestingly. Verse 24, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a male strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall leave, let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of the slave, the male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Listen to this one. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, this is like, um, you know, heavy equipment machinery in agricultural um, times, right? The ox gores a man, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if an ox, that was an accidental injury, right, on the work scene. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, this is someone who's a delinquent um, business owner or business manager. He knows the ox is dangerous and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman. The ox shall be stoned, and the owner also shall be put to death. So there's sort of just desserts that are given in this culture. It's dealing in terms of motivation, in terms of moral culpability, responsibility. This is how the Old Testament law read and functioned. What the 
New Testament times uh, meant were that there were Pharisees and rabbis and false teachers that were taking the law that was a good law to restrain evil, to create fairness in the culture, and they were twisting it for their own ends, unleashing people to be angry and retaliate. False teaching is always the subtle twisting or, or just, just manipulating truth just enough to cover and condone someone's sin. That's false teaching. And false teachers typically are the hypocrites that are doing the sin. So they shift the scripture. They take off the true meaning of scripture to accommodate what they're actually doing. Doing for their own ends. The law was meant to show mercy. Even Lex Talionis in the Old Testament was meant to show mercy. People who would believe the Pharisees' interpretation that you're supposed to take vengeance into your own hands, guess what? That will eat your spiritual lunch. And I know this as a pastor, as a counselor, when people want to take vengeance into their own hands because they feel ripped off, they feel like they were done wrong, they feel like they were violated wrongly, and they, they a lot of times are like rising up in pride and arrogance, wanting to be vindicated, and they take matters into their own hands, they are eating themselves out from the inside out spiritually. It's no way to live. You have to leave judgment with the Lord, right? Romans says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. One ancient quote says, a small infraction of one tribe against another, for instance, trespassing was met by a beating and then returned by homicide, and then countered by genocide. The foundation of law was always to limit evil. We know that if law leaves our own country, we'll be lawless like third world countries that we see where cartels and other people are in charge. Somebody's always going to be in charge. But at the same time, we come submissive to Christ and we want to seek the true meaning of the law. People twist things all the time for their own ends. Even the Constitution, the freedom of speech, where people say, you know, you can say anything you want, anytime, any context, because I'm free to speak. That's anarchy. That's not the original intent. And then you have the politically correct people or people who are trying to control it the other way and say, well, it's free except for when you say something politically incorrect. Now it's not free. The Declaration of Independence, one of the most well-crafted sentences in the English language is found there. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. When people use that instead of for moral and civil rights and um, the identity of mankind being made in the image of God, they use it as a contract for license to say you can do whatever you want to do to pursue licentiousness. Well, Jesus, he comes here to this text to correct wrong teaching. The false teachers here, the rabbis were saying, you have license to be angry. You have license to take matters into your own hands. So just go do it. And Jesus is warning believers to say, no, follow me. Do it like I do it. Don't do it in the flesh. Romans 12, 19, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Retaliation is not an option. Revenge is not an option ever. And Jesus is clearing this confusion. 
We leave vengeance with the only one qualified to enact the vengeance, which is God. And guess what? This is a counterintuitive attitude within our culture. It's completely counterintuitive. It's different. It's impossible for the world to do this kind of work from the heart. Makes an impression on the world, though. So verses 39 to 42 here are framing how believers respond to abuse. And I'm going to break down these responses into four scenarios. The first one is insulting your dignity. It's when your dignity is insulted. Okay? Someone's dignity is on the line. What do you do? Your dignity is insulted. What do I mean by that? Verse 39, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other side also. So it says, do not resist the one who is evil or the evil person. Don't resist them. If they slap you, turn your other cheek to them so they can do it again. What does that mean? Well, this is not talking about some random attack slap moment. That can happen, but that's not what this is talking about. In rabbinic teaching, and Jesus was cueing in off of this, this is when someone insults you. This is when someone tears you down publicly. This is called the, uh, it's called the heretic slap. It's a backhand. You heretic. You're wrong. You're, you know, whatever. Fill in the blank. You are fill in the blank. Where they publicly shame you. What are you supposed to do with that? Well, guess what? You got to look at that as a great opportunity to be different. To be different. People bow up. They fight back. They hit back. They say things back. And instead, you have the power of Christ to be Jesus in that moment. What does that look like? Well, a couple things. Number one, the context of being insulted means that uh, this is not particularly talking about fighting back in terms of protecting your home. I mean, I've scared off intruders before, you know, verbally and, and you know, you've got to leave, I'll call the police. I mean, you've got to protect your home. You've got to protect your family. He who does not protect his own is worse than an unbeliever. Uh, you know, I've faced off with people I think are demon-possessed even here before, eye to eye, and they're out of their heads and they seem to be empowered in ways other than just normal ways. We got to do that. Paul was a sports fan. He was a fighter. He, he liked military um, ideas, uh, the armor of God. Think of that. Running the race uh, with endurance to have the prize, holding up the shield of faith, using the sword of the spirit. Second Corinthians 10, 5, we're destroying speculations and lofty things raised up against the knowledge of God, taking every thought, thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Think in terms of guerrilla warfare and taking people captive, Right. You're taking thoughts captive. The picture there in 2 Corinthians 5 um, or 10.5 is destroying um, castle armament. You have like castle fortresses that are armed to the teeth and you're coming up with your, your barrier um, brigades with, uh, with catapults and you're launching stones at, at this to break down a fortress. What is that the picture of? That's fighting the good fight of faith where you are destroying speculations, false teaching, wrong-headed things that will send people to hell. You're relentless. You're a fighter. You're a wrestler. You're a runner. You're going to keep going all the way to the end, enduring to the end, crossing the finish line. This is the heart of a Christian. Now, how does this play out if somebody insults you? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 gives us a little insight here. 
All that war language is real, but the way it comes across in the spirit of God is amazing. Listen to what Paul said. He said, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us walking according to the flesh. The Bible says when we are weak, then we're strong. The Bible says, um, I believe it's Proverbs 15, a gentle answer turns away wrath, a harsh word stirs up anger. It's, it's being harmless like doves and wise as serpents. You come humbly. When people ramp up, what do you do? By the Holy Spirit, you go, I'm going to ramp down. But I'm not going to compromise with truth. And I'm going to stand firm. And I'm going to say I'm committed to Christ. It's the Lord Jesus, when he was being slapped and mocked and abused, going to the cross, either pre-cross, having beard ripped out, slapped in the face, tortured, insulted. He never denied who he was. He never denied his mission. He never denied his heavenly father. He never, he never equivocated in one moment. He took the insults. He took the beating. But what did he do? He countered with truth. We don't fight people. We fight for truth. You don't fight anybody. You fight for truth. You do the right thing. I mean, you might have to protect yourself. You might have to wrestle somebody or restrain somebody in a situation where you're protecting your, protecting your family, protecting your household. I mean, I understand those things. But we fight for truth in the warfare of insults where people will try to drag us into their playground and go tit for tat or they'll try to shame you or bait you into getting in the flesh. When you stay in the spirit, you stay bold as a lion and you contend earnestly for the faith. There's a lot of warfare language in terms of the Christian life, right? There's a lot of strength of character where you're gonna dig in and your feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel. They have spikes in the ground and you go, I'm standing firm for truth. I cannot, I will not recant. Here I stand, I can do no other. But at the same time, you don't retaliate in the flesh. That's a biblical balance. It's incredible. This person gave me this analogy last night. I was talking to him about um, a little bit of an emergency thing and he was helping me out. And he said, you know, it's so important to respond calmly. It's so important to, to ramp down and be calm in the moment when things happen, whether persecutions or trials. And he said, in one sense, if you're in the flesh, it's like being a, a novice skier. And he said, he wasn't a good skier, wasn't raised skiing. I'm not a great skier. I used to ski a little bit when I was a teenager. Now I would fall down. But, but what's funny is when you're first starting out as a skier, you know how it is when you get on the lift and you feel a little bit uneasy and your skis are going towards the, you know, the off ramp and you're like this. If you start to let it get in your head and you go, oh, and you get your poles and you're nervous like this and, and the thing comes up and you go, what happens? You, you bail off to the side and people don't laugh at you, right? But if you don't think about it and you're relaxed and kind of chill and let the thing kind of happen and just go with it, you just, and you're right back down. That's how it is in terms of being in the flesh or in the spirit. If you're in the flesh and you're uneasy and you try to force things, then you'll end up falling over. If you're in the spirit and you're strong and you're just relying upon the Lord, then you can fight. Fight in humility. When I am weak, then I am strong. That's what Paul said. It's amazing. Not walking according to the flesh 2 Corinthians 10, again, verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. 
It's spiritual. Even there's a hint of this in verse 39. Do not resist the one who is evil. That could be alluding to Satan himself, the evil one. Verse 37, um, anything more than this, anything more than perfect integrity comes from evil, which is paniru, which could be the evil one. We're resisting Satan. We're resisting satanic strategies when people want to insult us and ruin our testimonies. Secondly, not only are we going to be abused through insults. Secondly, people are going to sue you for your possessions. And we see that in verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Stop there. There's a difference between the outer cloak and the tunic. The tunic is something that people could legally go after. They could legally sue you for your undergarments. A tunic is what was close to your skin. It kept you warm. But the cloak was uh, the indispensable um, blanket protection that you would use to be able to um, endure the elements as a nomadic sort of desert war, you know, person who would be walking in the desert. You would have this um, cloak so you could even sleep during cool evenings outside. Exodus twenty two twenty six says if you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you return it to him before the sun goes down. Deuteronomy twenty four thirteen, you shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you and it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. So you don't take someone's cloak. Kent Hughes said it's possible to sue someone for their shirt, but to take a person's cloak for a permanent 24 hours was not allowable. So what is the point here? Well, even Luke 6.29 switches it up and fills this out. The way Luke writes Jesus writes of Jesus' teaching here is he reverses the cloak and tunic. And he actually says to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. What is he saying? And we're going above and beyond here. We're saying, here's my undergarment. And here's, here's my cloak. Here's my full, watch this, here's my full vulnerability. As one person put it, if somebody steals from you, if they wanted it that badly, maybe they need it after all. If they want it that badly, they can have it. Uh, it's the way to be free in a culture that is a suing culture. I'm not saying it's never a time as a Christian to go to court or to have the law protect you legally. I know good, godly Christian attorneys and the law, according to John Calvin, is meant to restrain evil in this world. And so we're thankful for law. We're thankful for order. We're thankful for the court system. But there is a real cost that should be counted before you go into court. And you never want to go into court with a heart to retaliate. Oh, yeah, you did this to me. I'm going to come back at you. Now, as a Christian, if you're being extorted, if you're being um, abused in this way, it could be best just to give not only your tunic, but your cloak up um, rather than enduring legal fees and all the drama that happens from this. It could be someone who needs to stand willing to be defrauded, taking an attitude of full surrender. That's what this is talking about. Are believers supposed to take other believers to court? No, never. 1 Corinthians 6 says that in verses 1 to 8. When you have a grievance against another, does he dare to go to court before the unrighteous instead of the saints? In other words, deal with issues in church, with church leaders, 
with accountability? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent for, but to try trivial cases? Do you not know that you're to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to life? So that if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? The world can't even understand certain heart dimensions that are going on. Christians can. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to the law against brother and that before unbelievers to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you? Why not rather, listen to this, this is the key. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? If you're like me, when someone takes something that's yours, where you know it's legitimately yours, even down to a dollar, something, something comes alive, right? Like, how dare they? How dare they do that? You know, give me my correct change. You know, that kind of thing. You know? You swipe that twice on the beeper thing, right? I mean, come on. We need to be wise with our money. We need to take care of our own family. We need to give, you know, to those in need. But we don't want to be ruled and dominated by our own flesh, right? The love of money is the root of all evil. By by loving money, many have been driven through in their hearts. That's the word picture Paul uses. Many pangs from holding too tightly for money. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Jesus says, if you want to live like me, you don't go about things that way. You're, you're willing to think testimony first. It's not that you won't end up in court or need the governing authorities to help you, especially if you're dealing in terms of unbelievers. I understand that. Romans thirteen seven, governing authorities are God's servant for good. I understand that, but at the same time, it's testimony first. Think in terms of your testimony. Think in terms of how your witness is coming off as people are watching. One professor said it this way, even when you have the right by law, you have the right to give up your right. Right? Well, here's another one. So it's when you're insulted, when you're sued, And then when you're commandeered into service, commandeering you into service, verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Jesus is alluding directly to the Roman government and how Roman authorities would come to the Jews in particular and command them to serve on the spot. I mean, could that happen to us out in Anchorage where someone is saying, I'm commanding you as as the police or or some governing authority to say, you need to do this right now? Yeah, that absolutely could happen. The issue is your attitude. It's your attitude of submission where you say, okay, I'm not violating God's word. I'm not violating God's law. I'm not, you know, going against my Christian witness. And so I'm going to submit. And not only am I going to submit, I'm going to be the most submissive person in the moment and not go one mile, but two. I'm going to do even more. This is the Christian's witness. Simon of Cyrene in Matthew 27, 32 was called upon by the Roman centurion, carry the cross beam for Jesus Christ to Calvary, to Golgotha. And he did that as a Roman soldier. Did he love Christ? I'm not sure, but he was, the word is 
compelled, Matthew 27, 32. He was pressed into service. So it'd be like being put into a military draft where, where you don't believe in the war, but you go anyway. And you serve Christ as a witness, going the extra mile. All right, the last one. The last one is when you're swindled out of money. So you're insulted, you're sued, you're commandeered into forced labor or forced service, and then you're swindled out of your money. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is a person who is coming to you in need and their need is desperation. And Jesus is countering the idea that you can use the law to get out of giving. Again, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? We're just talking in terms of fairness, just desserts. Hey, you give to me, I'll give to you. You do this to me, I'm going to do this back to you. Bup, bup, bup. I mean, this is how people think. Not back then, this is how people think, right? This is how the world works. Christians have the off-road ramp off this highway to say, I don't want to think that way. I'm going to give anyway, just because. What, if the per, what about the, if the person is manipulating you for money? What about if the person is going to do harm to themselves with the money? They're going to buy alcohol. They're going to buy drugs. Well, we don't want to enable people. But we also don't want to just get out of giving. We don't have to be like the world. We don't have to measure things in the way the world measures things. It's giving money to desperate people. Watch this. Even when their motive for the money is questionable. You say, well, this doesn't sound wise at all. Well, Proverbs 19, 17. Again, this is the way not only to be like Christ and to stand distinct, distinct as the world, but to be free from having to worry about these things. Think about the freedom. I don't have to worry about going to court anymore. I don't have to worry about hitting the person back and seeing what's going to happen to me. I don't have to get entangled with some playground fight. And I don't have to worry about where my money's going if I'm giving it out of a heart and a right motive in doing so. Proverbs 19, 17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. It's interesting. And he will repay him for his deed. You give it to God. You should give it to someone. Give your possessions freely, leaving the outcome to God. Exodus twenty two twenty five speaks of not giving to people as if you're a money lender. You shall not exact interest from them. When encountering someone in des- desperation, the temptation is to say, look, I don't want to enable them. I don't want to help them continue to leave, lead a life of self-destruction. But... Are you not tipping the scales in your heart away from someone, leaving no room to help anyone at all when the Lord could be prompting you to do so? What do I mean by that? Well, what did James, the half-brother of Jesus, say in chapter 2, James 2.15? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and the one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Don't we just need to hear it that way? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Living like this, impossible, apart from faith. Living like this, made possible by living faith. That's it, bottom line. You can deal with these kinds of things, these life issues, 
If the Spirit of God's inside of you, you say, oh, well, I'll buy that guy a hamburger. What if he doesn't want a hamburger? <laughs> Maybe he does. Jesus wasn't solving world hunger with this phrase. He would come into whole towns and heal any, anyone that was sick or lame or needed help and came to him. But he didn't go to every town. He didn't heal everybody in the world at, at once. He could have. His primary mission was to win hearts by being a witness. And that's what we do. We have to be discerning. We have to decide how and when and what's the right way to help people. But we need to help people. John Piper, who lives this in Minneapolis, he walks to church and does different things there and sees homeless people. And he says, when you stand before God in heaven, God is not going to be concerned with how discerning you were with your charity. God doesn't want our hypersensitivities. He wants us to look at the world around us and respond like he did and would. If we've done it unto the least of these, we've done it unto him. Well, you say, good sermon, but this standard is impossible. But isn't that the point? It's impossible. Something impossible is made possible by Christ. And when we live the impossible by the grace of God, not in perfectionism, but by Christ's perfect standard that we're, by the Holy Spirit, yielded to try to follow, when we do that, we stand out. But only when we do that do we stand out. Half Christianity does not stand out as distinct. It doesn't look powerful. It looks powerless. It looks like a social club. But when you live this way, you live within the sphere of Jesus and it stands out. It's real sacrifice. It's real evangelism. You say, well, how do I win people to Christ? Where's the evangelism class? Where's the one, two, three? How do we get this done? Live this. Start here. Just live this. People will wonder what's going on. They'll ask you about it. What in the world? What did you just do? What did you just not do? Who is Jesus in your life? I was hearing my daughter last night. She came back from a, a trip from Fairbanks, and she had uh, been with uh, the girls' basketball team, and um, one of the basketball players is not a Christian yet and was part of their devotional group, and they were talking and staying up together, different girls talking and she said once the devotion was given the atmosphere of the team changed and everybody was beginning to talk spiritually and this young lady who I'm praying for um, she she said you know there's there's something different about you ladies I don't feel God like you feel God that's a layman's version of saying I don't understand what's alive in you as opposed to what's not yet alive in me that's evangelism, living distinct, living different. We need to exercise discernment with those who would abuse and at the same time not ever revile or retaliate in kind. This non-retaliation is not enough, though. There's a second component. We're going to look at that next week. It's not just don't retaliate, but also love. Love your enemies and pray for your enemies. That's what we're going to look at next time. God gives his children grace when being attacked to both love and pray for the attacker.